Uh, Last week we heard an appeal to be reconciled, reconcile with God, and reconcile with God's ambassador, the Apostle Paul. Now, if last week was let's be friends, this week is kind of the opposite. If last week was let's be friends, this week is break up, separate, leave these people. It's true sometimes, isn't it, that you have to break up with someone in order to make up with someone else. You have to break up to make up. You have to leave in order to join. You have to refuse one party to reconcile with another. And now, this seems to be the teaching of the Bible in our passage as we have it before us. Have a look for a moment at the context. Look back where we were last week. Chapter 6, verse 11. Here's Paul saying, let's make up. Look, he says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Chapter 6, verse 13, in return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. Let's make up. Let's be friends. And, of course, he says the same thing, too. Just skim across um, in our context to after our passage today. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. This apostle is saying, let's make up. Let's be friends. Let's reconcile. But in the middle today... We have a passage that tells us to break up. What's, what's the, what was that first line we had? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So here's a message uh, telling us to break up. Now, it feels uncomfortable, doesn't it, even as we start? Uh, it's not a message we hear very often, is it? I mean, I'm preaching it, you're listening to it, and I think if we're honest, none of us likes it very much, do we? <laughs> I mean, we want to be nice. We don't want to be the sort of people who leave others and say we've got to break up. I mean, think of the last time you were told or you told someone else, leave them. Break it off. I mean, try and think of everyday occasions when you'd say something like that. I can't think of many. Uh, I think I remember in school being told, don't play with the naughty boys. Leave them and play with the good boys. Uh, I remember a few years ago having to tell someone to um, not open their door to a dodgy financial advisor. Leave them. Break it off. Don't talk to them anymore. They're scamming you. Um, I can think of many occasions where people have been told to leave abusive relationships and abusive situations, uh, advised to leave, and rightly so. But being told to break off a relationship in everyday circumstances seems, well, it just seems weird, doesn't it? That's not very nice. That doesn't seem very tolerant, we think. Maybe you're thinking yourself, even this morning, I could never do that to anyone. That would just hurt too much, too costly. For real, right? I mean, this is is hard stuff. But of course, it all depends on what breaking it off means. I mean, what does this command in verse 14 really means? So we're going to spend a few moments together Thinking about what does this command mean? What does this command mean? And and why is it said? Why is it said? Because I I can't believe for a moment that Christians are told have nothing to do with unbelievers. That, that, That doesn't sound like the Jesus who sat and eat with tax collectors and prostitutes, does it? 
I don't think this passage either meet, I don't think this passage either directly teaches we're not to go out with or marry non-Christians. I mean, the Bible does teach that. I don't think it teaches it here. And I don't think this Bible passage either means that we're not to work with or be in business relationships and so on with, with unbelievers. I don't think it means that either. Um, though people have thought that. No, I think this morning, here's the what this command means. I think this morning, this command means for us today, don't receive instruction. Don't receive teaching from unbelievers. Don't receive your beliefs and your views from those that don't trust in the Lord Jesus. By all means, live and love and work and play and eat and banter and celebrate and congregate with all sorts of people. Do it with as much, many different kinds of people as you can. But don't let their beliefs become your beliefs. I don't know whether you've noticed, but some religions and some cultures have a kind of take it, take it in kind of view. Whatever views out there, it's like, oh, yeah, you believe that. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, we'll accept that. And, and it's kind of you glue any belief into your life. I think it's true, isn't it, that Christians can become pritstick Christians, gluey Christians. We can pick up an idea and think, that's nice, and we sort of glue it on. And before you know it, <laughs> we're gluey Christians. And I think this passage this morning says, don't be a gluey Christian. <laughs> Look how he says it in verse 14. To the church then and to us today, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, Look how it says it again, I think, in different ways in chapter 7, verse 1. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Here's Paul and he's saying, I want you to make up with God. I want you to make up with me. And in order to do that, there's some stuff to clear up. There's some stuff to clean up. There's a breakup that needs to happen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So what does it mean? First thing this morning, what does it mean? What is this idea of being yoked together? And who are the unbelievers? Well, what is being yoked together? Let's see about this. (laughs) It's not a very common image for us, this idea of being yoked together. It's not familiar to us, but go back a couple of hundred years and it's very familiar Uh, Being yoked together is a farming image, and you can see it here. Uh, You've got kind of one kind of ox or cow that's kind of lassoed, and another that's lassoed, and then they've got a kind of cross beam you can see there that holds them together, and then the cattle would kind of pull a plow or something to plow a field. Um, This is the idea of yoking together. Combined with their strength, they can pull the plow along. And our passage today says, Do not be unequally yoked. Don't be mismatched. Um, The Old Testament said a lot about this. Um, Here's Deuteronomy. You shall not plough with an ox and a donkey together, said the Old Testament. Uh, You can see it quite well, can't you? If you've got a a strong ox and a donkey, they're going to be mismatched, aren't they? (laughs) It's not going to take very long before there's complete disaster. Uh, That's the image here. And and, uh, the Old Testament speaks more of it, of course. Um, Leviticus says... Uh, God says in the book of Leviticus, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. The Bible says that you put things together that are going to work together. You wouldn't sow wool to Hessian. It's pull apart. It's no good. You don't put an ox and a donkey together. 
um, it's a disaster. But the question is, of course, um, what is this idea of yoking actually pointing at? That's the image. Okay, I can see the image in my head. What is it pointing at? What does Paul mean when he says, do not be unequally yoked? Well, I think we see, if we look at the Bible, that taking on a yoke is to accept someone's teaching. What does this command mean? Do not go on receiving instruction, teaching a yoke from unbelievers. I want, let me show you that from, from one place in the Old Testament, one place in the New Testament. Here's, uh, here's the Old Testament. Um, the people of God are speaking to King Rehoboam about his dad. And what do they say? They say, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. The people are saying, that, that king, his instruction, his commands, his law, they were heavy. They were burdensome. That was the yoke that they carried, do you see? To, receive, to have a yoke is to receive someone's teaching or instruction. That's what it means in the Old Testament, it seems. But have a look at this beautiful verse from the New Testament. Here's the Lord Jesus speaking. And what does he say? Balm to your soul, this is. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See that image here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. To be yoked to someone is, in Jesus' words here, to receive someone's teaching. So the message is this. Do not be mismatched. Do not be unequally yoked. Don't receive someone's teaching that ought not to belong to you as a Christian, as someone who has taken the Lord Jesus' yoke. Do not be yoked to unbelievers. And so Paul says, break up with that teaching. Break up with unbelievers' teaching. Reconcile to God. Reconcile to him. So do not be unequally yoked. This is the, what the command is. But who to? Who are the unbelievers in our passage? Well, it seems to me that the people who Paul wants the Corinthians to break up with are these so-called super apostles we've heard so much about. In Corinth, some people have turned up in town, haven't they? And Paul is saying now, and this is the shock of our verse, these people are unbelievers. Don't be yoked to them. Don't receive your beliefs from them. There are people who talk about Jesus, who look like Christians, it doesn't make them Christians. With these super apostles who came to town, well, when it came down to it, they were Greek in what they believed. They loved polished speeches and rhetoric. And when it came down to it, they were Roman in the way that they despised service and they despised weakness. These are pagan ideas. And here's Paul saying, don't get your teaching from preachers who are just spewing out your culture back at you. Don't be taken in by their ideas. Break up with them. Break up with them and make up with the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but it's at this point where I think this passage really is very so very relevant, isn't it, to me. I mean, how easily do we let into our hearts and into our lives 
uh, teaching that's just really our culture repackaged at us. I, I think of a few years ago, walking into Christian bookshops, and books uh, like, for example, there was a book called The Shack, and it had all sorts of peculiar views about God. And really, our culture was skeptical about who God is. And The Shack just, in many ways, repackaged that and gave it back to us. Our culture has a low view of the church. Well, that book reflected it back at us. Our culture has a low view of the Bible, and that book largely gave that message back to us. Um, that Our culture doesn't understand God as a, as a triune God, as the Trinity. And that book sent that confusion right back at us. And millions of Christians let, let that into our lives and let it shape our thinking. Many Christians read that book not even as fiction, but almost as teaching, you see. How easy it is for us to let things in. I think of being in Christian bookshops and seeing books by Joel Osteen or Joyce Mayer or others like them saying, live your best life now. That's what Christianity is about. Idolizing health and wealth and happiness. Is that Christian? Just a mirror, isn't it, of our world back at us. And so here is the Apostle Paul saying, there are unbelievers in the midst of the church Don't get your teaching from them. Their message, it's all about what looks good. A method and a message about what looks good. And Paul has been saying from the very beginning of his letter, our boast is this. This is chapter one, what Paul says. Our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in this world with simplicity, with holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom. Christians Christians don't, don't live their life according to earthly wisdom. We live life by what God has said. Now, these people teach pragmatics. Do what works. Speak well, look good, proclaim a joyful, happy life. And people will want to join in, say these super apostles. It works. And Paul wants to say to us this morning, we might get, we might get captivated by what works. But don't be taken in by it. Now, maybe you think we're not, um, we're not sensitive to that matter today in the church. That's, that's not an issue for us. But actually, we are quite pragmatic people. Of course, there's good pragmatism, isn't there? But think how much we idolise, for example, niceness. Now, of course, we don't want to be horrible to anyone, do we? That would be awful. But consider how much we think, if only we were a nicer church, If only I was a nicer person. If only we had nicer sermons, nicer music. Then God would do more things and people would become more Christian. You see, that's just the message these super apostles were (laughs) were teaching, outward niceness. And Paul's been at pains to say to us, it's not about the appearance. It's about God's work. And so here's the message for us, friends, this morning. Don't go on receiving that instruction. The focus on what's outward, the crude pragmatism without the trust in the power of God. Break up with that teaching. I wonder where you think that might have crept into your life. Well, that's the what of this command. That's the what of this command. Why? Why? Maybe you're persuaded of this command this morning. Maybe, maybe not. 
Why, why ought I do this kind of break up from this teaching and these teachers? Well, Paul gives us a couple of reasons why. He gives us two questions. Um, he talks about partnership and he talks about promises, okay? Why are we to break up with the unbelieving teaching? Partnership and promises, okay? Paul asks us, what partnership can there really be between the teaching of unbelievers and Christians? Look at, with me at verse 14. Paul really stresses this and he piles up question after question. Look at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, that is full on, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, question after question. Paul, Paul gives us here five questions about things that are just totally opposite. They're like the antithesis of one another. He says, look, in the area of law, in verse 14, what partnership does law-keeping righteousness have with law-breaking? I mean, imagine a court where you had a law-keeping judge and a law-breaking criminal jury. What partnership can there be? And the answer is, of course, uh, none. In the area of creation, what partnership does darkness have with light? When the sun rises, darkness is expelled. If someone at a theatre says, oh, can we have a bit of dark and light on the stage? Well, you can dim the lights, can't you? But that isn't dark, and it isn't light. You either have dark or you have light. But what you've got in between isn't dark and isn't light. (laughs) Dark is dark and light is light and you can't have the two, you know, you've either got one or the other. (laughs) And Paul asks, what accord, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is another way of speaking of Satan. And of course the answer we're to give here is none. What partnership can there be between God's son and king and the rebel and the chief enemy? There can't be any partnership. I love the next question that comes. What portion, did you see that? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That portion, that idea is, 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 a, is a Bible word for speaking of inheritance, of speaking of future. What future does a believer share with an unbeliever? And of course the answer is not. There isn't a future shared. So, don't share the unbelieving unbelievers teacher teaching don't receive their instructions don't receive their ideas and beliefs their theology even make a break now of course we want to reach our culture don't we but if we become like our culture what good is that i remember a friend at youth group saying many years ago he came to a bible study and it was his first day of sixth form college i've shared this story i think before And Rob said, I had this conversation at college with two girls, and they said to me, you're a cool Christian, Rob. And we're just starting our Bible study, and Rob says, I thought that was great. I came away buzzing. I'm a cool Christian. And he said, you know what, I've come under conviction, actually, because I think what those girls meant wasn't that I was particularly cool, that I was a cool Christian. What they meant was I was a worldly Christian. Actually, I was just like them. And my witness to the world hasn't been actually to point to the Lord Jesus, but just to point to myself. 
he was he recognized in that moment that he'd become a gluey Christian. He glued his behavior and his dress code and his speech and his style and stuck it all together. He was a gluey pritstick Christian. And he wasn't all out for the holiness of God, the God who is really there. And of course, wouldn't it be nice if we were cool Christians? <laughs> but the reality is if we were <laughs> If all we were was cool and non-offending, affirming Christians, then would it be a real Christianity at all? The God who speaks and who speaks to us and our world speaks to call us to repentance and faith. He speaks to get us to turn and trust in him. If all we are is cool and like the world, we'll never be a witness to the world. Sometimes this illustration is given and I rather like it. Uh, There's a book and a film about the inhabitants of a U.S. suburb called Stepford. Perhaps you've seen it. And in Stepford, there is something odd about the men and women in in this suburb. The, The wives of Stepford aren't real. They're robots in the story. They've been programmed to do everything the man supposedly wants them, wants a good wife to do. So these women never argue back. They never ask for help. They never get their own jobs. They never cause an inconvenience. They don't have any politics uh, or beliefs. They're not real. They never disagree. And here's the thing. If we are in partnership with the world so much that we're like the world, who's to say our God is real at all if it's just like humanity? It's a human God, not the real transcendent God who is there, the creator. If we're to have a faithful witness to the God who's really there, well, we must break from the teaching of the world, mustn't we? Otherwise, all we're doing is fashioning a Christianity of our own making. So Paul says, don't go on receiving instruction from unbelievers. What partnership does the real God have with unbelievers teaching? God is the creator. And when we're not trusting in him, what are we saying? We're saying, I'm going to be creator God of my own life, you see. And friends, we can't have anything to do with that kind of teaching and the implications and the ideas that follow from it. Christianity is simply not worth having unless it's different from the world. Without the God of the Bible, we won't have a God who speaks to us and to our culture. We won't have the William Wilberforces. We won't have the Martin Luther Kings and so many more besides. Break up. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I guess the challenge for us today is, well, where have I got worldly teaching? Who am I listening to? So one question we might ask is, who am I listening to? The next question might be, what have I listened to that that might be gluey? (laughs) That I might have glued in that needn't be there? The challenge, of course, is that often we can't see it, can we? We're, We're our own worst enemies. We're blind to ourselves sometimes, aren't we? But ask yourself these questions. What aspect of the Christian faith are we most tempted to change? That might be because we want to glue in some unbelieving teaching, mightn't it? What aspect of the Christian faith or the church do we feel most needs improving? Are we trying to fashion our own God at that point? How would you answer these questions? What do you say and why? Do your ideas come from God? Do they come from others? What partnership can there be with the teaching of unbelievers? Break it off, partnership. Number two, break it off, promises. Here we go, last, last point here. What promises has God given you? 
think on this. What do you have from God? And how can the teaching of anyone else live up to it? Why would we want to align ourselves with others when we have the wonderful promises of God? Uh, Skim down for me to chapter 7, verse 1. Look at Paul's argument. 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, let's clear out that teaching. Let's cleanse ourselves from it because we have the promises of God. We don't want partnership with the world when when we have the promises of God. And so we had this piling up of these questions, didn't we? What partnership? What fellowship? What accord? What portion? And look at verse 16 now. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Chapter 6, verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And here are the promises. As God said, here is what God has promised you. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here Paul quotes a, a patchwork of the manifold and many beautiful promises of the Lord God. God promised that one day he would dwell again with his people, that he would live with them, that he would walk with them, that he would be their God and they would be his. It's a beautiful image. Does it not feel like a marriage covenant to you? God promised that he would give them everything and that they would be his. God is giving himself without restraint. That's God's promise. And doesn't that motivate us to want to listen to him and not to others? I mean, who in a marriage relationship says, ah, yes, dear, I love you so much that I'm not going to listen to you. I'll listen to someone else. (laughs) Who does that? Would I love God by saying, I'm not going to listen to you? No, you wouldn't. I think verse 17 has it right, doesn't it? You want to leave. You want to separate from the teaching of others. You want to come under God's law again. You want to have his welcome. Because he has promised us himself. Now, of course, this teaching this morning is hard, doesn't it? And it hurts. When we have to say to our friends sometimes, no, I don't believe that's right. Or when we have to correct things that we thought and believed for years, we have to say, no, Ollie, I mustn't think like that anymore. Of course, it's hard and it hurts. But what promises do we have in God? You see, God hasn't just promised to give himself to us. But now we are his temple, his dwelling place. And so that can't leave room for the idols of pragmatism and success. God's given us so much more. He's given us himself and he's promised to be something particular to us. Look at verse 18, I will be a father to you, promises the Lord God. True fathers love, true fathers provide, true fathers protect, true fathers stay, and the true father loves till the end of time. 
And his laws and his ways are freedom and life because in him we find freedom and life and joy. What promises do we have? Don't you want to leave that teaching to cleave and cling to the God who says, I will be a father to you. This is what God has for us when we, when we break off from the world and we give ourselves to him. He gives himself to us. It strikes me at the moment, we're in a bit of a time, sort of doubt and drift a little bit, aren't we, in this kind of malaise, COVID malaise, I suppose. And I think we, I guess we sort of doubt the church a bit in times like this. And perhaps we feel maybe a little bit apathetic sometimes. And when we feel like this, we're tempted maybe to blame God. Maybe blame the church. Oh, they need to be nicer people. They need better message, better music, better stuff. The stuff needs to change. The church needs to make some sacrifices, really. God needs to change. My friends, God doesn't need to change. God doesn't need to make sacrifices. We need to sacrifice our gluey Christianity, our pritstick Christianity. We have to cut out that unbelieving teaching that's crept in. We had it the other day, actually. Um, if you're in growth group this week, um, we had a little story told to us, true story of a university student um, who turned up at university and said, I'm going to love bomb my friends. I'm, gonna lo- I'm not going to tell them I'm a Christian. I'm going to love bomb them. Okay? And um, the story was told that everyone thought, wow, this lady, she's amazing. She's so lovely. She's so nice. And everyone concluded, oh, yes, she must be a vegetarian. Right? But they didn't conclude that she must be a Christian. And you see, we've glued ideas like that in, haven't we? If only I'm nice, people will think I'm a Christian. But of course, that idea can't deliver on its promise, can it? (laughs) If we're nicer, people won't necessarily think we're a Christian. And they won't necessarily become Christians. The world says, change the outward appearance of your Christianity. You'll be more successful. No, you won't. Just be more worldly. You won't get more Christians. You won't witness to the community. You won't be witnessing to the one true God. We have to break up with that kind of crude pragmatism that sneaks in. The focus on the outward appearance and break up and make up with God, as it were. It feels hard, but do you see that it's worth it? What promises do we have in God? Come out, says God, and I'll walk with you. I'll be with you. I'll be a father to you. Isn't that wonderful? So as we close, some searching, I think, to do. How might I have let the world's teaching in and pushed God out? Have I forgotten what God really says? Have I forgotten that for the Christian, weakness, yes, weakness is strength. Have I forgotten that it's a joy to say nothing in my hands I bring? Simply to the cross I cling. Have we forgotten that it's a wonderful thing to say I am a great sinner. But I have a great saviour. I don't need to look good. I need to point to the cross. Maybe I say in my heart yes to God in all sorts of ways. But actually, it's both and. It's yes to God, but and I need to give people feel-good feelings. And I need a, a, a smile that never cracks. 
And I need a face that never cries. And I need a faith that glides over everything to look good and persuasive to the world. Friends, it's just not true, is it? We have the God who triumphs in weakness. The God who comforts when we are weak. And we need to get away from those ideas. For in God, we have something that promises us so much more. Sounds intolerant, doesn't it? To start with, break it off from those teachers and those ideas. But it's only intolerant because we want God. We don't want both. We want him. We have the one who promises that he loves us so much that he doesn't wish to share us with anyone or with anything that would do us harm. So, sometimes you have to break up to make up. A few moments then for us to think and pray through what this might mean for us. Perhaps you'd bow your head for a few moments in the quiet and think on this. How do you think you have become a gluey Christian? Glued to the world's teaching, gluing it into your faith. Do you think you can shake off the idea that We'll only have success if we look good or do the right things. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this uh, word to us this morning. Thank you that you promised to give yourself to us. Thank you that you promised to be a father to us. And we have no promises like this in all of the world. And Father, we recognize how often we have thought, there's a good belief, there's a good idea. Yes, I'll add that in. And how foolish we've been. Father, forgive us. For only your power and your spirit is sufficient. Weakness (laughs) is what you're about and what is needed. And you will provide strength and you will do your work by your Holy Spirit. So forgive us, we pray. Help us as we go from here to root out areas of unbelief. Help us to do this in the community of which we find ourselves. That we might walk with you and be a glorious witness to you, we pray. For we ask it for Jesus' sake and his name alone. Amen.